0: Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Cato Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Sid Hill is an ecological landscape designer and more importantly, an ecological thinker, challenging himself his clients, and the broader horticultural world to keep going and to go even further in rethinking how horticulture is practiced and thought of in our world. A believer in the ability for intentional and well-thought-out design to help our gardens help the world in moderating so many of the challenges ahead. Sid asks us to think like the plant and animal communities and the indigenous peoples that are foundational to the uniqueness of our places. He asks us to think like habitats and their dynamic patterns as we look to the future. I think this plant and ecology of place-centric thinking is a perfect one to close out 2023 and to herald in 2024. Sid Hill, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Cultivating Place.
1: Thank you. Hi, Jennifer.
0: I would love to have you introduce yourself to listeners in the way you like to introduce yourself and, and maybe include something in there about the importance and role of plants right now in your life? Like, what do they represent in your life, Sid?
1: Yeah, thank you for that. I'm Sid Hill. I run an ecological garden design and build business in Cornwall. I live in St. Ives in Cornwall, which is a coastal village with beautiful coastal walks along um, the coast paths where you can see all of the plant communities that thrive in the harsh environment. And really, plants have been an important part of my life since childhood because I grew up on a small holding and since then I've worked with plants and it's been really my main focus. And now in my work, Mm. it's really the, the understanding and the relationship between people and plants that inspires me. How we can live in symbiotic mm. relationships of plants, tending the land to support our needs and support the needs of other life,
0: I want to have you take us back a little bit. And uh, I'm not sure if you were born and raised in Cornwall or somewhere else on this small holding, but I'd love to hear and have you share with listeners a little bit more about the the people and places and plants that grew you. Uh, on that small holding, and then probably off in the world a little bit more into a person for whom this would be your life's work, Sid?
1: So, yeah, I've had a bit of a different upbringing to a lot of people here in the UK, in that I was home educated, and my parents took quite a radical approach to my education. And instead of going and sitting in a classroom, I was taught about permaculture, ethnobotany and how to work and live more sustainably on a small holding. So I traveled a lot as a child throughout Europe in a camper van, where I spent a lot of my time playing in different wild landscapes with my brothers and my family, and just exploring like plants and different interesting landscapes across Europe. And then when I was... About nine years old, my family bought a small holding in Portugal, in the north central Portugal, up in the mountains. And in this time, instead of going to school or doing, I did do some academic subjects, but most of my time was actually spent working on the land. I was lucky that we had an edible forest garden. I could go and harvest my breakfast from my lunch, harvest tomatoes for pasta sauces, different fruit. And I, really, I had the opportunity as a child to stuff my face with as much fruit as I wanted fresh from a tree. <laughs> and, and this growing up on the farm, learning all of these different skills, land-based skills and learning about working with the land and edible forest gardening, this was really the inspiration for me that led to my current practice.
0: Mm. Mm. Now, before we get to your current practice, I want to go back a little bit. How how old are you and how many brothers do you have? That's,
1: <laughs> that's quite a complicated question. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 29 and okay. I have two full brothers, three brothers, and three sisters. So it's quite a big family.
0: (laughs) That's a great big family. I love it. And so I'm just really curious about this um, because I think different people's kind of Genesis stories are, are interesting to all of us. What did your parents do that this was their sort of chosen path for raising intelligent and compassionate and observant humans?
1: So, my, my mother is, she has, has lots of different um, interests and specialisms, but she is a philosopher, um, teacher, herbalist. And she, I remember growing up with a very much like an English cottage garden with her and learning mm-hmm. about different essential oils, herbs, and growing them in quite a wild way in the garden. Mm-hmm. And she's very knowledgeable with education. And when she was a child, she grew up with quite severe dyslexia and when she was a child she was just labeled as stupid
0: Mm. and
1: so when she had her kids she didn't want to put them through that same experience so she Mm. gave us the choice to go to school if we wanted to or be home educated and she she had a complete passion for teaching and inspiring learning in children. Because, oh, you'd have to, to have, she actually had home-educated six kids. And yeah, and it was my dad who, like they 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 separated when I was young. And so I sort of led two lives growing up. And my dad, he is passionate about permaculture and plants. And he actually runs a seed business called Heirloom and Perennial, specializing in permaculture plants and seeds.
0: Mm. and like
1: heirloom vegetable seeds. And it was with him, I traveled Europe in a camper van. And then with him and his um, wife at the time, they bought a small holding in Portugal. And that's he was the one who really taught me about permaculture and gave me a, a, the opportunity to learn a lot of practical skills in sustainability.
0: Yeah, yeah. And For for listeners who might not be familiar with that term, will you kind of define or describe what you mean when you say a small holding?
1: Okay, yeah. So a a small holding is is I I suppose in America you might call it like a hobby farm or something. Um, It's it's sort of um, it's it's a small scale non commercial farm where it might be commercial, but it's more more likely a like a homestead where a family lives. And they grow a variety of different crops and animals at to to provide for their own needs. And then may have some extra to sell. Or you do find small holdings which become commercial and they make their living from the farm. But in our case, we didn't make our living from the farm. It was mostly experimenting with sustainability and trying to provide for our needs off the land. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think maybe here we would call it like a diversified family farm because it has, it's not just one crop. It's, it's the whole system working together of animals and plants and trying to keep things on the, uh, you know, a closed loop as much as you can. So your father was very interested in permaculture. Your, Your mother taught you all these other sort of sets of skills relating to plants and, and herbalism and, and life. You then at some point fledge from your parents, did you immediately go into garden design? Tell us how you moved from being under your parents' wings and then being out on your own and finding your way to what you do now, Sid.
1: Yeah. So I was I was interested in permaculture when I I started up my business and I actually went into academia, but I wanted to study permaculture and get qualifications in it. But I found that in the UK college and university can't actually study permaculture so I came back to England with this idea of studying and I realized that in this time on the land I'd learned all of these skills that in England I could make a living from or make make money from so actually when I was just 15 I started up my business really specializing and focusing on ecological gardens and permaculture And at the same time, that's when I started at college, but because I couldn't do permaculture at college and I wanted to get qualifications and work my way up through academia, I actually sort of designed my college, my time at college and at university to sort of focus on permaculture, but not exactly in that initially I did countryside and wildlife management, which covered Mm -hmm. ecology, land-based traditional skills, like in the UK, we do dry stone walling, um, woodland management, conservation grazing. And so this was a college course that gave me this whole variety of different skills and understanding in the land-based industry, including ecology and integrating animals into this. And then I went on to university and I studied for two years, a degree a foundation degree in ethnobotany which if if people listeners don't know what ethnobotany is ethnobotany is the study of the relationship between plants and people how do people interact with plants and really my focus when i was doing this research was i was interested in indigenous practices of how people tended the land, different methods, so edible forest gardening, chinampa systems. And then I I was also interested in sort of how do urban people use plants in community gardens, urban agriculture. So this was two years of study. And then I went on to study for my honours degree at the Eden Project. I don't know if, if you've heard. The Eden Project.
0: I have visited it and I am so admiring of this, but m- many listeners might not know about the Eden Project. So please uh, elaborate on that.
1: So the Eden Project is a really incredible botanical garden that really promotes sustainability, education, and ethnobotany. So it was an old uh, mine, at clay mining site where it was completely denuded and a big pit was dug out and it was quite a, um, yeah industrial landscape. And a guy called Tim Smith had the vision to tr- transform it into a botanical garden. And they've created these huge biodomes which contain a tropical rainforest within a temperate climate because they actually drill down deep into the ground to bring up thermal heat into the, the big biomes. Right. And it's just, it's an incredible place. And they, they now do degree courses in horticulture. So I, I went to the Eden Project to do two years to get my honours degree. And I studied landscape and garden design. So that was to really bring in all of my understanding of landscape, plant, ethnobotany, ecology, and to bring that together so I could start my own practice designing multifunctional landscapes that restore environments, produce food, improve people's lives, and really remediate some of the contemporary issues we're facing.
0: This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Sid Hill is an ecological landscape designer and more importantly an ecological thinker challenging himself his clients and the broader horticultural world to go further in rethinking how horticulture is practiced and thought of in our world we'll be right back to Sid's germination story stay with us Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Cato Shaw Foundation. The Cato Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. There is so much that catches my attention in this early history of Sid's career. The foundational setting within the ideals, diversity, and interdependence of a small holding. A mini habitat of its own, which is the opposite of the agro-industrial monoculture system that dominates so much of our growing world. The knowledge inherent in the evolutionary systems of a functioning habitat, the knowledge and learning possible from studying land-based indigenous cultures across time and space who have respectfully learned from and continue to do so, adapt to and with their habitats. is the original dynamic in situ design that Sid and many garden practitioners are modeling to us in these times? It is observant, responsive, and responsible, rethinking and reimagining the world we can grow, as well as what might need to be composted from the world we have been grown in to now. As we move from one year to the next, one thing I have complete and total faith in is our ability as gardeners to wake up every day and seed the world we want to see. This has always been true and the choice remains ours. Seed the world we want to grow. back now to our conversation with land and ecological artisan Sid Hill sharing more about his ecological garden design and land care journey.
1: If I was from somewhere it would be Cornwall because I've traveled Mm -hmm. a lot through my life but I've always come back to Cornwall because that's where my mum lives and I had a lot of friends here. And it's, it's quite rare to be able to study ethnobotany at undergraduate degree level, because it's quite a specialist yeah. subject. And I was really interested in that, the functional aspect of plants, like herbalism and edible plants and medicinal, and that that's what I wanted to. That's what attracted me to stay in Cornwall.
0: So when you use the term ethnobotany and indigenous uh, land management and, and plant knowledge, are you specifically studying the indigenous plant traditions and methods of the United Kingdom, of the whole world? When you say that, unpack that a little bit more because it's the term indigenous, of course, refers to the peoples that are original to any place. And that's a broad, that's a very broad stroke.
1: Yeah. So, really, with ethnobotany, I'm interested in plants and people and our connection with that, whether that's people who aren't Indigenous or Indigenous cultures. But it just happens to be that a lot of Indigenous cultures have a lot more in depth and interesting relationship with plants. So, I've, I've found really interesting indigenous cultures of South America, although I haven't been. I've done research from the UK about the Shuar and how they yeah. did a, a slash and burn type agriculture where they would clear areas of rainforest, transplant, plant seeds and cultivate the ground, planting edible forest gardens and then moving on and carrying on doing that. And this interaction with the land over time led to an anthropogenic landscape of the Amazon, which is actually far more diverse with all of these different fruit and nut and interesting trees and shrubs. But this is actually from interaction over thousands of years with humans. And this is what really fascinates me is this idea of how actually indigenous cultures have lived with their environments for thousands of years, not degrading them actually enhancing right. ecological health and diversity. And there's other right. examples which I've been really interested in, like the Salish people of Vancouver in, yeah. on the border between Canada and the United States.
0: Yeah.
1: And with them, is what, I, what I've been really interested in is the Camassia meadows they cultivate because these, are, these mm. are beautiful wildflower meadows where they harvested one of their staple crops from, the Camassia bulbs and i just i've just found it fascinating the idea of how we can learn from indigenous practices but and then integrate that into our current horticultural industry and gardens so that we can learn from our history to improve our future
0: you know one one way or another that that is certainly my goal clearly it is your goal but this idea i think of the power of intentional landscape design to feed us and to feed our ecosystems and our uh, environment in a way that benefits the environment is is really critical to the power of gardens as we move forward. Talk about your process and, and maybe what you've learned along the way and, and maybe even include some mistakes in there and, and things you do differently now, Sid.
1: Yeah, so I've... I'm 29 now and I've been running my garden landscape business for the last 14 years. And I've, I've really gone in lots of different directions in that time as we do when we're passionate about a subject. We explore different avenues. And, and the great thing about the horticulture industry is there's so many different avenues we can go down. Mm-hmm. And I've, I, initially, I I've, I've mainly practiced um, garden maintenance Uh, tending people's landscapes and I for quite a long time I found it quite hard because of what most people wanted from a gardener and it was really just tidying it was almost like you're a garden cleaner Mm
0: -hmm. not really
1: actually intentionally (laughs) growing plants just chopping things back and tidying them up and it became a pivotal point for me in my career where I actually just said no (laughs) that's not what I do. This is what I do and if people want that, they can come to me and that's really to tender land thoughtfully, really to enhance it for both people and wildlife and produce food and beautiful, a beautiful landscape from that as well. So I was running a landscape design and build business and really for the last five years it's been focused on designing and building landscapes and one of my lessons really was how the garden design landscape design industry creates like the landscape designers who create almost make a product out of it and it's like okay here's what's your budget here's your design we're going to build your landscape with your budget here you go pass it over Mm -hmm. and I, I found that that is that is a real disconnection from land and it doesn't allow us to be thoughtful and intentional because right. the landscape is living, and and so are plants. So we really need time to work with them. Yeah, and that's why, like when when I do landscape design now, I really and the first thing I do is I ask for two to three days within the budget to be able to come and be on the land and to even work the land doing like basic physical tasks like if we say if there's lots brambles intending on clearing those brambles i'll, I'll work to clear them mm-hmm. whilst i develop my thoughts and the ideas with the space because i remember there was one lesson i had and i I'd, i i'd met a client i'd got the brief i'd had an interview with them i'd gone home in my office i would designed them a landscape and then I went back and I was starting to lay out the garden. It was on quite a steep slope. And their child, whom I think he was about six at the time, he just ran as fast as he could from the top of the garden to the bottom of the garden. And that one action of how he used the space right. completely <laughs> changed my design. Uh. Because it, no, although it was really well thought out design, which would have looked beautiful and it had lots of different ecological aspects to it, it wasn't designed for that purpose of a child running through it fast. Right. And because I, I hadn't been on the landscape for a longer period of time, I didn't observe that. So what what came out of that was developing more of a sort of dynamic design process where I'd actually design the garden on the site using an iPad and what's called SketchCAD Morfolio Trace. So I would actually go to site and I would sketch the master plan. And the good thing about it, I mean, it's phenomenal, really now, technology for designers, because yeah. Morfolio Trace on the iPad, that's a whole draftsman's tool set and the power of CAD, computer aided design, in a small device. So that actually means i could sit on site for a day designing it testing out ideas and then as that's developed i've actually got what i call my mobile design studio now which is actually is my camper van and is a comfortable space with heating and a cooker so i can make tea so i can actually park up at my project and spend time in the space testing ideas and getting to know the landscape because this idea of landscape design where just often designers don't even see the garden. They, they might work in a team. A surveyor will go out and survey it, give them the the, the the initial survey drawings. They'll design it and then give that to a landscaper or someone. And this disconnect, is, is, is about, I, I see that as being a big issue with our whole industry.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that... Um... That standard of how this kind of work is done is really that line between objectification and relationship.
1: Yeah, and that that relationship with the land, and it's what what, what has been developing for me is the ideas of actually how can we create a design that is implemented over time through management, intentional, thoughtful management. Because a lot of the time people don't often don't have these big budgets. And so how do we communicate with the gardeners or the people who are tending the land so that they can work towards the goals of the land over time intentional intentional management because there's all of these books what i found where it talks about creating ecological plantings and it's very much focused on the creation of them from scratch but how do we actually tend what's there to enhance its ecological health its its food production or its beauty and this is what i've, I've been developing myself just also it's come out of sort of necessity because i've created quite a lot of landscapes now and i i don't want to always to be the one who has to go back and maintain them mm-hmm. so I've, what i've been exploring is how can i communicate quite detailed and complex management strategies which communicate to the gardener or landowner how they can carry on thoughtfully tending the land towards their goals yeah And what's what's been really inspiring me recently is this idea of rewilding. But I think a lot of people sort of misunderstand rewild and rewilding and think it is just we can leave the land to rewild and do nothing, which I'm sure in some areas of North America where you've still got an intact mammal population and herbivores and such, that that where they have that interaction with the land you might be able to leave it to rewild and it would actually turn into the sort of ecological oasis that you would expect it to but in england where we are an island a small island where we've completely decimated our whole animal population it means that not only well not only have we decimated our animal population but we've also completely fragmented and fenced off all the land so it's animals and plants that have evolved over millions of years with these intricate interactions that then this, this relationship is what leads to a diverse and healthy landscape without these interactions and the disturbance of animals, say large animals coming through and ripping off branches, pushing down trees or small animals digging holes, grazers coming through and pulling up grass all of these disturbance behaviors are what leads to ecological health and diversity of plants mm-hmm. which then echoes out into insect species and other mammals right, right and what I'm really interested in our in my gardening practices and the sort of thoughtful management strategies is how can we take inspiration from the disturbance behavior of animals so looking at Pigs or um, cows or chickens? How can we look at the disturbance behavior of these animals and take that as inspiration in our gardening practice mm-hmm. so that we can be thoughtful and we can attempt to create that ecological health through their disturbance patterns? Right. So some examples of that is what I've been looking to is like um, thoughtful creative mowing. So large herbivores go through the landscape and they graze. All different herbivores have different height; so they'll graze grassland down to. And so, th- when they graze a the grassland, it's creating all of this variety in vegetation heights. That's like a rainforest for insects. Right, all of this structural diversity. So, if we can't bring in a variety of herbivores into our garden or landscape, which Today is usually unrealistic. Can, how can we take the take what we the tools we have and the resources we have, which is a lawnmower, and how can we create that structural diversity with a lawnmower, leaving some areas to grow tall, cutting other areas really short? Because it's even I don't know what it's like in North America, but in the UK we had we well, we saw rabbits as an issue and we've actually decimated their populations again and actually what archeologists find now is rabbits graze the grass very low and and when they graze grass so low that exposes soil areas for our solitary bees to nest in yeah or what so when we look at animals they have all of these specific behaviors so you might have a cow who come along and they'll actually, they actually grab clumps of grass and rip out big clumps of grass, exposing soil, which then that creates the opportunity for seedlings to come in. Mm-hmm. So if we're tending the landscape, can we come through and rip out areas of the gr- vigorous grasses we don't want to and then seed in with scatter our seeds of plants we do want? Or... Another example is um, I've always been really passionate about chickens. On the small holding, I grew up on the, uh, I actually had to nickname Chicken Boy because <laughs> I, I, spent, I spent so much time with the chickens and I loved watching their behavior. And one of the techniques I use to create wildflower meadows is what I call chicken scratch. And I come through with a Chillington hoe or a very, not a very powerful tiller. And I really just scuff up the top surface of the soil, really knocking back the existing vegetation and then scattering seed. And if anyone has got any experience with chickens and they leave them in an area for a couple of weeks, depending on how many chickens you've got, they go around and they scratch up the surface of the soil, eating the vegetation and creating that disturbance that allows the opportunity for wildflowers to get established. So, with these management strategies, what I'm, my current practice is really inspired by how can we learn from these behaviours and then communicate that in management to slowly and thoughtfully tend the land towards our design or our intentions.
0: This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with Sid Hill, a multi-award-winning ecological garden designer and artisan with a passion for working with plants and ecology to creatively remediate contemporary issues and adapt to the climate emergency. We'll be right back to more with Sid after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, It's Jennifer again. And so while I might have a small handful of visions for the new calendar year and this next cycle around the sun, the top of that vision list is this. May we all learn the healthiest, most intact, and diverse habitats around us. May we learn as well to think just like them. From the mycelium below to the interconnected canopies above, composting what is not needed from the past to grow what is necessary for the future. Happy New Year, gardeners. Here's one more to grow on. We're back now to our conversation with land and ecological artisan Sid Hill, sharing more about his ecological garden design and land care journey, helping us to leverage our gardens in helping the world moderate all of the challenges we face, biodiversity loss, climate change, and cultural disassociation. As we come back, Sid continues our journey.
1: So quite often when I'm explaining about these concepts and trying to teach people about ecological gardening and design is I I quite often suggest people think in habitat types in that when you're looking at a landscape or you're trying to design a landscape coming up with plant combinations or management strategies is to think what habitat type do the conditions represent? And then when, when we think like that, that narrows down our plant selection and the approach we might take. So, for example, if we look at a woodland, in a woodland, if there are no disturbances, quite often one species will, will end up dominating over time. And then when there is a disturbance comes through and, and some of like a forest fire, let's say, or historically large mammals, like an elephant might have come through and knocked down trees. And then that opens up the planting for the opportunity for light to hit the forest floor and then plants to come up and thrive. But in this landscape, when in a forest landscape, there is a large amount of nutrients generally, which then that makes that very available and plants quickly grow large and tall and rapidly whereas if we compare that to where I'm now in in Cornwall on the coast and we've got these beautiful coastal walks where it's an exposed landscape where you really have a lot of limiting environmental factors Mm -hmm. so you have salt spray you have the wind quite often it's low fertility dry soils so in this habitat type plants grow very slowly and because of the limiting factors you, d- you generally don't have as much disturbance because also i mean on the coast it's it's less favorable for large herbivores mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm. and then if we look let's say at the tall grass prairie system that is a very fertile landscape with rapidly growing plants that have evolved to be competitors their competitive strategy is to grow quick And but what has managed to maintain diversity in that system is the disturbance from herbivores. So what I'm trying to get to is when we look at landscapes, we usually either have disturbance or in limiting environmental factors that govern whether we're going to have diverse plant communities. Because on a harsh environment, plants grow slowly. And we have these limiting factors, so then that allows a diverse plant community to grow without that disturbance. But then if we have really fertile landscapes without many environmental limiting factors, we might have fertile, plenty of moisture, sunlight. In this environment, we really need a lot of disturbance. So then if we understand this as gardeners, what is our intention with the land and what is the current habitat type? Is it fertile? If it's fertile and we want to create a really diverse meadow or prairie planting, we need to be the disturber. We need to come in and disturb that landscape on a regular basis because otherwise one species and the most dominant plants will thrive. Yeah. Whereas if we have a very harsh growing conditions, which might we might modify that ourselves if we want it to be quite low maintenance and slow growing and we don't want to interact very much We might create a gravel garden and we might plant Mediterranean and dry adapted plants because then that is very slow growth and it doesn't need that same disturbance. But yet it's not going to grow rapidly and we're not going to have the similar blooms what you might have in a fertile soil. And this leads on really nicely to this sort of idea. What I've always come across is this. Idea in horticulture where we all need this black, perfectly water-retentive and nutrient-rich soil, right. <laughs> but in reality, we don't having yeah. that. And, and but no, we don't. And, and and reality having that, we're actually creating more work for ourselves mm-hmm. because it's better conditions for a wide variety of plants to come in. And usually, what happens is the strongest plants win, unless we're constantly out there pulling them out and interacting and disturbing the, the planting. Whereas if we actually have a very low nutrient soil where plants grow slowly, and we've specified the plants which are matched to our environmental conditions, and it, it's low fertility, maybe not very much water, sun scorched, and we, put, we select the perfect plants for that environment, that means that we it's slow growing and it's not as easy for a wide variety of plants to get established in it. Right. And this is really in my my practice. Now I'm really inspired by looking at plant communities and understanding plant behavior and then taking this inspiration to incorporate into design and create long-term sustainable plantings, but incorporating edible and useful plants from similar or the same habitat types so that we can create these edible ecosystems.
0: Yeah. Now, I want you to kind of bring us full circle into the importance of these small actions in our own places, making, especially when aggregated across many gardeners, making a pretty potentially large impact in the positive on some of these bigger issues? Yeah, a
1: lot of this, really this thinking, stems back to when I came back to England when I was 15. And it was quite a shock for me, really, coming back to England and speaking to my other teenage friends who had never eaten a, a, a pear or had never eaten a fresh piece of fruit from a tree. And as, as my understanding developed, it means that we can't really care for its health and well-being. For example, in our culture, so people cry when a famous person dies who they probably have never met, but they've just seen him on TV. But if a native plant, which is from their local area, becomes extinct, people don't really know about it. And if, even if they do, they probably don't care because we're disconnected from the environments and plants around us whereas if the plant that went extinct was an apple tree and that person had grown up with an apple tree in their garden they were really fond had fond memories of a connection with that plant it means that they would be sad and the state we're in now, with this disconnect, means that we, we don't care for the health and well-being of environments and other living things, and gardening and working with the land and plants, I think, is that connector, and especially when we start talking about food and and. But I think in England, and it's the same in North America, over recent years, the sort of the mainstream media and the image has very much been like a housewife in the garden with a wicker basket harvesting some pretty flowers and it's very much a privileged and luxury in activity gardening and I remember when I was at college this girl asked me what I was studying and I said horticulture and she said what horse culture I didn't even know that was a thing. And it it was just, to me, it was so crazy that she didn't even know what horticulture was. So I think that working with plants, we can reconnect people with with the landscapes around them. And when we start talking about horticulture, not as a privilege, but as a necessity, working with plants, uh, because they can offer us solutions to our contemporary issues. When we tell the narrative of landscapes being able to mitigate and reduce flooding or capture and store rainwater to increase water security or increase food security through abundant ecological landscapes that provide nutritional food, enhance the landscapes with beauty and and support mental health, when we start talking about horticulture through this narrative, what I've found is the younger generation, my my, my age and under, and actually it's, it's, it's echoing out into our culture now, but when we talk about this story of horticulture as being a necessity, it's very much more attractive industry to come into rather than it just being a luxury and about aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And really with my work, what I've been attempting to do is connect the horticultural sort of ornamental industry of landscapes and gardens with permaculture and the sort of functionality and trying to resolve contemporary issues and support life to merge these two fields so that we can create landscapes that are really beautiful and they, they have that artistic flair that captures people's attention and once you have people's attention then it carries on going because when we talk about landscape, the benefits are so diverse. So when we've caught someone's attention for the beauty and aesthetics of landscape and, and floral plants, it then gives us that opportunity to teach them about eco-literacy and create that connection that inspires them to get involved and to learn more about plants.
0: Yeah. And I think You know, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about the fact that our industry actually mimics what we have done to our landscapes in so many ways. It is fragmented into these different camps. And the more these camps are not fragmented, but overlapping and collaborating, you know, so that it's not... The permaculturist here and the rewilder here and the the ornamental landscape designer over here and the vegetable gardener over here, but that they are all working together with open kind of exchange. The better off we are in what the general person perceives as horticulturally literate and aesthetically profound, they become much more uh, unified, I think.
1: It's definitely true, and 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 that's I mean, as we develop our understanding of ecology, we're more and more we're realizing how important all of the interconnectivity of life is, and how there isn't really such a thing as an individual. Right. And it just amazes <laughs> me when we then look at things like um, lichen, which is an algae and a fungi. Well, it was for a long time it was believed it was just one species of algae and one species of fungi that come together to create a mutually beneficial relationship and a, a single structure, living structure. But now we've, what we find is actually a community of different fungi and algae that come together. And depending on what individual species come together, it creates a different structure. And when when we look at this, that is then echoed out throughout our whole ecological systems in even our ourselves. So I've, I've been really interested recently about my own microbiome and how actually if, if I eat healthy plants that are straight from my garden, which has been grown in a biologically diverse soil that has actually then leached off microbes or there's been microbes on the leaves or on the roots. And then I eat that. That then supports a healthy microbiome in my digestive system, which then allows me to digest and then also fight off other pathogenic microbes. And that's, I mean, when we, when we get into it, we realize that we're all interconnected and, and the health of the land, the health of the soil, the health of our plants is echoed in our own health. And if we put out anti-life agents like pesticides and herbicides, We're killing life, which is absolutely vital for our own existence. So then we we have all of these issues coming up, of of digestive issues, because people eat sterilized food, which has been completely washed off of any microbes or soil. And then it's also been grown in quite often inert, sterile soils, which have been sprayed with so many anti-life agents and now i've I've really got into eating sauerkraut sourdough what i've seen is with my partner when she eats these microbially rich foods after a lifetime of having digestive issues and not being able to eat very diverse foods now after having a microbially rich diet she is like a miracle she can now eat a whole variety of foods and she doesn't get an upset stomach.
0: These are connections, I think, that, that we as humans are hearing and we as gardeners are hearing and reading about. But I also know that they are connections we need to just keep trying to make and talking about and sharing forward. Because in elevating the way we speak and think about gardening, that is how we grow the world better and we grow the world we want to see. And it reflects ourselves and who we want to be in this world. Right, Sid?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sort of leading on from that sort of microbiology, and that that's, that's an aspect which is just phenomenal. And it, so much new science now is coming out on microbiology and our understanding of the microbiology of ourselves, but also soil. And this is what we do in so many different practices in our culture where we don't understand the ecology and we break up these connections. And this is really what has been further and further leading me to a much more wild approach to gardening and and my interests really in, in more tending much more wild landscapes and learning how, we can plant into the indigenous vegetation of the site maybe edible and useful plants so that we can actually rather than just removing everything we're sensitively and thoughtfully making those disturbances and then planting our plants into it into the indigenous vegetation so that we can create minimal disturbance and really work with the special characteristics of the land and existing plant communities and the phenomenal things that microbes do in the soil like if we have there was an example so I I haven't really touched on it yet about edible wildflower meadows that I design and I've I've been doing this research into designing seed mixes for edible wildflower Mm -hmm. meadows and in this time I've been exploring edible meadow plants across Europe and across the world but traveling Europe by van and bike. And I came across this meadow with faba, the broad bean growing. I think it was a forage mix that they put down. But this faba was growing and thriving around all of these other wildflowers. And none of them had this black aphid on it, which in England, I don't think might be the same in North America, but in England, if anyone's grown, a visiofaba the broad bean it often struggles with a um a pest like a black aphid Mm -hmm. that sucks its sap and it can be a big issue and what in my research i was reading about visiofaba and how visiofaba actually sends what are called info chemicals through fungal networks in the soil so if a visiofaba plant gets attacked by an aphid it then sends the what are called infocats, so information chemicals, through its own system, into the soil, through the fungal networks, which are like root networks in the soil or fungi, to other broad bean plants, which then that lets them know that there's aphids in the area and they can start making alkaloids to help fight off and make them less palatable to the aphids and so this is the, the the symbiotic relationships the aphids have created with fungi in the soil in exchange for sugars from photosynthesis but in our annual vegetable gardens when we grow Visiofaba, the broad bean usually we well, often we dig over the soil disrupting these fungal networks which then means that they can't use those vital connections, those beneficial connections, they've evolved over thousands of years to be able to survive.
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program. It has been an education to speak with you, Sid, and I applaud all of the work you are doing and sharing there uh, based in Cornwall.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, really a pleasure to speak to you and to share my passions for this work.
0: Sid Hill is a multi-award-winning ecological garden designer and artisan with a passion for working with plants and ecology to creatively remediate contemporary issues and adapt to the climate emergency. We opened up this year focusing on biodiversity, and it seems only appropriate to close it similarly, with plant community thinking getting the final say. In January, CID's new online course, Edible Meadows, How to Create Edible Plant Communities, will go live. This will also be run as a citizen science project to develop the research further on how gardens help remediate biodiversity loss and climate change. Join us again next week, and next year, when we open up 2024 with another artisan and native plant advocate, Esme Cabrera, whose work under the name La Mamigami is an artistic and native plant-based practice providing us all with a portal to creatively reimagining our way to growing the future we want to see. Ingenious colorful, biodiverse, plant and place centric. That's my wish for the new year. Join us next week right here. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by DoList Transcription, and communications support by Deanna Newpert and Matt Valiga. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Tell your public radio station to find us there. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.